We have just finished another major message by Jesus. He's been teaching for the last several chapters. And as we begin this chapter, Jesus again mentions the fact that he is soon going to be crucified. And then in the first part of this chapter, after he says that, there are two radically different responses. And both of these people, from, from what, all I can tell, have been following the Lord for a long time. And so they are very familiar with him, and yet they respond to him in radically different ways. So I think there are some lessons for us there. We're going to take a close look at it. Um, but before we, before we pray and before we begin, let me just, this is an analogy someone wrote about the Christian life, a very brief analogy. And I want to start with it just to get us thinking a little bit about this topic. Here's what this person wrote. Our lives are fields that primarily contain weeds. We cannot produce strawberries. We can mow the weeds, but that effort alone <clears throat> will never produce acceptable fruit. If we really want that fruit, we will have to go deeper. We must plow up the whole field and start again with new plants. And so what this person, again, is trying to describe, at least the way it hits me, is they're describing our condition. That when we are born into this world, we're born with an inclination away from God. That's kind of just the bent of our lives. We're, we're born naturally selfish, naturally sinful. We kind of don't want him to see what we're doing because this is the way we live. But according to the Bible, we have the opportunity to be completely transformed by the Lord, by his word, by the Holy Spirit. We make choices, though, as we're going to see today in these two very different responses to Jesus' life. We make radically different choices sometimes. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into verse 1. Father in heaven, we just are so thankful for you today. Lord, thank you for being here with us. Lord, the Bible says you are rejoicing over us with shouts of joy. We, your people, the people that you have redeemed and called to be your very own, you're celebrating over us this morning and with us this morning. We just thank you for your presence and your love. Father, as we look at your word, I do pray that you'll be our teacher again today, Lord. Help us to hear the things that each of us need for our own lives. Lord, take us those next steps of the journey in walking with you and walking toward you. In the beautiful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, start with me in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples. So I want to just review there quickly. What are all these words that Jesus just finished? Remember several chapters ago, he came to Jerusalem, to, to that big city for the last time of his life. This is the last week of his life. And he gets into a huge debate 
with the Pharisees on several of those chapters. <clears throat> at one point when he's coming out of the city, he's going into the city in the day, coming out of the city at night and spending the night out in the countryside. When he's coming out of the temple, the disciples are just amazed at the buildings. They say, have you noticed these buildings, Lord? And he says, well, guys, not one stone's going to be left on top of another. And so as they leave the city and they get over onto the Mount of Olives, they ask him, when's this all going to happen? What's it going to look like? And so as we just went through, Jesus begins to show them the future and talk about right on into the tribulation period and then talk about his return, how he's coming back to the earth and he's going to gather his elect and he's going to remove everyone else from the planet. And then Jesus begins to tell them to be ready. Are you ready for my return? Are you sure you're on your way to heaven? Don't be like the five foolish virgins who weren't prepared. They didn't have oil. They were not ready. Don't be like the one servant that really didn't seem to love his master. Really didn't seem to want to serve his master. Don't be like any of those. But are you really ready? And when he's finished all those words, he then says to them in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So here again, Jesus tells them he's going to die. He tells them about his crucifixion. Now remember, he's been doing this for at least six months. Over and over again, he's been trying to get his disciples ready. Back in Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, there may be others. These are, the, these are ones that we know of. But in all those occasions, Jesus told them what was coming. And it seems like every time he did, he added a little extra piece of information. For example, the first time he told them, basically, his, about his death and his resurrection in Matthew 16. In Matthew 17, he adds the idea that he's going to be betrayed. In Matthew 20, he adds the thought that he'll be turned over to the Gentiles. And here in this verse, in verse 2, he tells them the exact day it's going to happen. He says, in two days, the Passover's coming and the Son of Man's going to be handed over for crucifixion. I think, that's an, I think we can take an important lesson from that. And that is that the Lord Jesus is the one in control here. He's the one who knows what's coming. He knows all of these details. And there's such an encouraging part of that. Because it shows us that Jesus did this on purpose. As he said at one point in his life, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down voluntarily. So it shows us that he loves us that much. That he would come to this earth for each one of us. And lay down his life in our place as our substitute. Just, I don't think we can think about that enough. He's the one who's in control. But go on with me into verse 3. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. All right, so great spiritual giants, right? Here they can't get their way. So they are plotting together how they can kidnap this man in secret and put him to death. Jesus has become wildly popular. He's become the hero of the poor person. The hero of the sick person. The hero of the hungry person. The crowds love him. And so these leaders are like, okay, we, we have to, it has to happen in secret. And so they, again, point out their great wickedness in this plan to kidnap Jesus and put him to death. Verse 5, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So this is interesting. They did not plan for it to happen when it happens. They said not during the festival. Okay, Jesus already pointed out in verse 2 that the Passover isn't going to take place for two more days. And then the feast of Passover, Passover is a week long. So these Jewish leaders are saying, not for nine more days. Because we're afraid there will be a riot. Because he's so popular. And so once again, we, we find out Jesus is the one who knows. It's not according to their plan. And and why did God do it right at the Passover? I think it's worth meditating on. I think he had it happen way ahead of these chief priest schedule because he wanted his son to be crucified at the exact moment that the Passover lamb would be killed. And it is just a powerful, powerful picture of what Jesus did for us. For centuries, the Jewish people, every single year at Passover, would kill a Passover lamb. And they would take that lamb's blood, and they would put it over the doorpost, on the lentil, on the doorpost of their home. Because when the destroying angel came through, back in the book of um, Exodus, he would see the blood, and he would pass over that house. That's why it's called Passover. And so Jesus is crucified at the moment they would normally kill those Passover lambs because he is our Passover lamb. He, pay, he did that in our place so that God would pass over our sins. God would look over our sins. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. All right. In these next verses... <clears throat> we get to see the first response that I was talking about. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, Personally, I believe that this is something that's been building up in this woman's heart for the last three years. 
We'll turn there a little bit later, uh, not right at the moment, but in John chapter 12, there's a parallel passage. John also talks about this same story. And over there in John chapter 12, we find out that this is Mary who does this. Okay, remember Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus who died and Jesus raised him from the dead. This is Mary who comes in and does this. We also learn in John chapter 12 that she doesn't just pour it on his head. But she's, it actually, you know, it's running down. And she actually makes sure it gets all the way to his feet. She's covering him with this extremely expensive perfume. And we're going to find out why she does that. What she's up to in just a moment. But before we do, the disciples have an interesting response. Look at verse 8. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Okay, so we're going to talk more about that in a minute, but they kind of react against it. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed for me, to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now check this out. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Fascinating. What in the world is going on? Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman did will also be talked about. Remember, it wasn't that long ago and repeatedly, some of Jesus' disciples were coming up and they were saying, man, I'm, I think I'm the greatest. And when you're in your kingdom, you know, I, we want to sit right here and right here. And Jesus would say to them, well, I'm not sure that that is an honor that I can just give to you. And yet here he says to Mary or to his disciples about Mary, this is going to be proclaimed everywhere. And then, of course, the really surprising part is she did it to prepare me for burial. She's anointing Jesus for his burial. So what's going on? Well, of course, we don't know for sure. But I think, very probably, Mary gets it. Mary understands what is about to happen. What all of the disciples, hardly anyone, it seemed like, understood until much later, until Jesus rose from the grave, until he appears to them alive and explains it to them. That's when they finally get it. But I think Mary gets it. And she had great opportunity to get it, right? Remember, they have the Old Testament scriptures, which they were repeatedly reading in synagogue and in their homes on the Sabbath. So she would have had Isaiah 53. 
He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. So she had those Old Testament scriptures, and she had Jesus repeatedly talking about it. We just went through some of all those times that Jesus told them he was going to die, he was going to be placed in the grave, and then he was going to rise from the dead. And she may have even, I wonder if she maybe even knew why he was doing it. Because of Isaiah 53. And also if you think about Matthew 20, remember that one time when the disciples were all debating who's the greatest? And Jesus said to them, he said, listen, the greatest is the servant. Become a servant, just like the Son of Man. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life ransom for many. So I think it's very possible that Mary understood exactly what was going on, and she just loved the Lord Jesus and wanted to show him her gratitude. You say, how, how could she get it when no one else got it? Well, in Mary's case, I think it's kind of obvious. Remember, she's the one who is always sitting at Jesus' feet with this eye contact. I mean, she's just zeroed in on the Savior. Remember at their house, Martha's busy with all the things. And Martha says, you know, have her get up and help me. And Jesus says, I'm not going to take this from her. I think Mary is just focused in on the Savior. And so she gets it. It's really quite encouraging. And the other piece of it that's encouraging is as she performs this act of love, Jesus understands <clears throat> her act of love. He understands what, what she's doing. I mean, he, his point-blank statement is, she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. So it's just like they understand one another. And dear friends, this being our first response to, you know, I, I think this has been building in, in Mary's heart for three years now. She's been following the Lord, loving Him, hearing His words. And her gratitude to Him has just been growing. And so here, in a very real way, Mary partners with the Lord Jesus in the work that He's doing. Right? She prepares Him for the climactic event of His life. So she partners with him. She loves him that much, so appreciates him. And I believe that's what the Lord wants us to do. The Lord wants us to look deeply into his eyes, into his word, really get to know him, and partner with him in the work that he's doing. I read an interesting story that I'll share with you quickly because, you know, you, you, one of the questions is how can we do that? He's not here like he was for Mary. Well, one of the main ways is through prayer 
and open up this book every single day. We can get to the heart of the Lord Jesus. This morning, Daniel read Matthew 5 for us. And we asked, who said that? And Jesus did. He spoke those words. And we can listen to those words. We can get the heart of the Lord Jesus. This is something that happened to a famous Bible teacher. It was from a pretty long time ago. So I don't know if you remember his name or not. But his name was Barnhouse. That was his last name. Barnhouse. So when he is very, very young, he's not a teacher yet, but he's very young and he's wanting to be a Bible teacher. And so he's, he's riding in a carriage to a Bible conference with another famous, very famous teacher. He's reading the newspaper. He looks up. He recognizes that this is the man who he's going to be hearing speak in just later that day. And he's reading his Bible. And, uh, and Barnhouse says this to him. He says, man, I wish I knew the Bible like you do. And that old pastor looked over at him and said, well, you'll never get there by reading the newspaper. <laughs> and he got the message and folded it up and put it down and got out his own Bible and started a lifelong journey and he did become a very, very well-known uh, pastor and teacher of God's Word. Well, let's go on to the second character. There's another response to Jesus, and I believe personally that this one's also been building for the last three years. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So, <clears throat> these words explain, I believe, who led the charge against Mary up in verse 8. Remember up in verse 8, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. They said, why this waste? I believe Judas is the one who led the charge. And it's pretty clear, actually, if you would go ahead and turn over. You can keep your Matthew, keep your finger in Matthew 26. But turn over to John 12 with me now. And let's read part of this other account of the same story. John chapter 12. I'll give you a moment to turn there. So if you look at verse 3, just to see that it's the same story. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, etc. Okay? So it's the same account. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, so he already had this plan, evidently, said... Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. 
So then Jesus goes on to explain some of the same things that we just read over in Matthew 26. So here's another follower of Jesus who's apparently not really a follower. Evidently, he is, in quotes, following for personal gain because he wants some sort of personal reward or some sort of personal riches. Maybe he thought Jesus was so wildly popular that, yeah, I'll follow him because I'll get, I'll, I'll somehow turn a buck off of this. We don't understand all of the details, but apparently this has been growing in Judas for some time. He already had the plan, it says here. You know, he was intending to betray him. And on this particular day, he, he then goes out. He says, okay, you know, to the chief priest, what are you willing to give me? And he begins looking for a day to do it. As he tries to look good about it by pretending that it's for the poor, he actually even ends up leading other disciples astray. Right? His, his attitude, and, and you have to wonder, is this the reason there's some confusion about Jesus' mission. If there's someone in the ranks who's got an ulterior motive, as he does here with this collection, you know, that we should have sold this and given it to the poor. I see some of the reason for the confusion. He seems to be helping lead some of the others astray. <clears throat> but I do think there's a powerful lesson for us here as well. And that is that it is possible to be in a church for the wrong reason. It's possible to be following the Lord Jesus himself through three years of ministry and service to others for all the wrong reasons. Because that's where Judas seems to be. So as we talked about a lot last week, Jesus talked about this last week. Remember, he, he said to some of those folks, I never knew you. And so we have to take those messages from Jesus to heart and examine ourselves. Judas goes on to do a very dark deed. I'd just like to read verse 16 one more time. And we'll be talking about it more in the weeks to come. But verse 16 says, From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Here he is, his follower of three years. And now he's going to get some money and turn in his Savior. So for us, how can we become like Mary and not at all like Judas? And very simply, I, I believe so much of it has to do with, like Mary, we need to be seated at Jesus' feet. We need to have that eye contact and be really genuinely hearing him and listening to what he has to say. I keep using the word eye contact because I'd like to share an illustration from my past with you that I just hope will help us all think more, think more through this and how we might be able to, what we might be able to do. But um, I was traveling, it's been quite a few years ago now, probably 15, 20, maybe even a little more. I don't remember the exact date. But I was traveling with a group of young people. 
and we had gone to a Christian conference up north. And uh, I can't remember if it was specifically from the conference or from some of my quiet times earlier, but I had been thinking a lot about eye contact. I am not that great at it. I want to be better at it because I feel like it is so helpful in communicating and understanding one another. But anyhow, I'd been thinking a lot about it. So we're traveling back down to Virginia on way home from the conference, and we stop on the way home for breakfast. I think maybe it was a pancake place. I love pancakes, which I cannot eat anymore. Anyhow, we stop uh, at this place. I'm in there at the table. I think maybe one or two people are left with me, but most everyone else has gone to find the bathroom because we're traveling long distances. And the waitress comes out. And she says, good morning. What can I get you guys? Well, I am thinking eye contact, eye contact, eye contact. So I don't answer her at first. I go looking around and I find her eyes. And I say, good morning. How are you doing today? Well, this waitress begins to spill her life to me. Now, just... A little side note, when someone does that, they are giving us something extremely valuable, and so we need to treat it as something that is very, very valuable. When someone starts giving us their life, we're supposed to treat it that way. And so I don't know how well I did, but I attempted to. But the, the thing that astonished me was, she didn't know me from anybody. But in the three seconds that it took me to look into her eyes and ask her how she's doing today, all those doors opened wide up. And I just feel like the Lord wants that with us. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know what's on His heart. Remember what he said to his disciples? He says, I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. And then he goes on to say, because I've told you everything. He's told us everything. He has given us the plan. And he wants us to join, him, join with him in it. Just like Mary did. She went in there. She took probably the most expensive possession she had, other than maybe her house, and dumped it on his head and partnered with him in his work. And I believe that's what the Lord would love for us to do. Just partner with him in the work that he's doing. That's what he has called us to do. That's, of course, that's been our theme for over a year now, right? taking it to their turf. Our ambition is to learn the Savior's heart and go and be about His business. I want to leave you with one final verse. If you would turn with me to John again. John chapter 15. And please do turn there. It's just one verse, but I'd like you to read it for yourself. If you're a person who marks your Bible, this would be a great verse to underline. John chapter 15. Again, Jesus' words. Just read verse 4 with me. 
He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Please pray together with me. Lord, we are just excited about the possibility of, of growing to be even more connected to you than we have been in the past, than we are today, Lord. This is a journey that we are all growing in. And Lord, I, I just hear in your heart that you would love for us to be tightly connected to you, like a vine, uh, like a branch is connected to the vine, like a limb's connected to the tree. We should, our unity should be that close. Your very life flowing into us and through us. Lord, would you lead us further into that journey today? We pray in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.